From the campus of George Washington University, welcome to WRGW's Pin Drop, the show where, each week, we spin the globe, drop a pin on a different country, and take a look at the big issues facing it. I'm Francisco Camacho, here to guide you through today's show as we explore the news around the People's Republic of China. Specifically, Chinese climate policy, China's recently abandoned zero-COVID policy, and the status of Hong Kong and Macau. On these issues and more, we'll be hearing from Professor Bruce Dixon of the George Washington University and Professor Jessica Liao of North Carolina State University. As always, we'll conclude with an amazing panel of students to discuss the news and what our guests had to say. On today's panel, we have international affairs students at GW, Patrick Ko, and a man who we will be referring to as Wukong, as well as Carl Mackinson and myself from the Pin Drop team, moderated by Kate McCown. Before we get into the country profile, we need to preface that this entire recording, except for the panel, has been redone in post. Someone and I must confess it was me, significantly messed up the first half of our recording for the show. So apologies for the lack of authenticity this time. Before we get into the news, it's country profile time. We don't expect you to know everything about China. We certainly didn't before this week. So here are some fast facts. The capital is Beijing. The gross domestic product is 17.73 trillion US dollars per the World Bank. However, we should note that this figure is heavily contested. No less than China's former premier, Li Keqiang, is quoted as saying GDP statistics are man-made and unreliable. Research from Luis Martinez of the University of Chicago last year examined satellite-measured light output. Martinez used this to estimate that the official statistics could be overestimating actual GDP by more than four trillion U.S. dollars, meaning actual GDP may sit at around 13 trillion dollars. The population of China is estimated at 1.412 billion, according to the World Bank. The official language is Mandarin, specifically the Putonghua dialect, native to the Beijing area. Provinces include Guangdong, Zhejiang, Hainan, Sichuan, and many, many more. 19 more, to be precise. And now our fun fact. Well, China does produce the most carbon dioxide emissions of any country, they also produce the most gross renewable energy in the world. More on that in a bit. But first, the Chinese national anthem, March of the Volunteers. Now let's get into the news, starting with our first issue of climate policy. Yesterday, a massive sandstorm swept through parts of northern China and Korea, turning the sky dusk yellow with the fine grains. The sandstorm is an eerie reminder of yet another impact of climate change. With drier soils, well, those tend to get picked up more easily by major gusts of wind, and so sandstorms become more common and more intense. China has been concerned with energy policy since at least 1949, though. As of today, China is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases, primarily as a result of the coal-fired power plants used for energy production and distribution. However, when considered on a per capita basis, China is the 51st largest emitter, far behind the U.S., which leads the world both currently and historically. China is also the world's largest producer of renewable energy, as mentioned earlier, leading in hydro, solar, and wind, respectively. The country is at a simultaneous advantage and disadvantage for wind and solar energy. 
On the one hand, regions of China have ideal solar and wind conditions for renewables, but those regions are in the northern and western parts of the country, far away from where the vast majority of Chinese live in the south and the east. This is a key reason that coal accounts for about 56% of Chinese energy production today. It's easy to move around coal to a nearby coal power plant. It's harder to transport solar and wind from far away over hundreds or thousands of miles to the population centers. However, Chinese coal reserves are extremely limited today, and the country is expected to run out of cheap domestic coal in less than 40 years. In roughly the same time frame, China is also expected to run out of reserves for oil and natural gas. Well, on the surface, this might suggest China would begin transitioning to greener energy sooner, the country does not yet appear ready to abandon coal. In 2022, China initiated 86 gigawatts worth of new coal power plants, more than double the amount that were started in 2021. In international talks around climate change and changing industrial policy of energy usage and generation, China often takes a combative position. It argues that the US, Europe, and remainder of the industrialized world relied on coal for their industrial revolutions, so why shouldn't China? China has purported to be taking action on climate change through policy since roughly 2007, when it published its first national action plan on climate change. Doing so, it became the first developing country to target the climate crisis. It called for increasing renewables, nuclear, and efficiency of coal-fired power plants, as well as additional methods. However, the plan did not include any targets for carbon dioxide emission reduction. That being said, in 2018, the UN confirmed that China reached its 2020 carbon emissions target set in 2016, three years ahead of schedule with the help of the country's carbon trading system. Now, our next big issue, another policy topic, the zero COVID policy. China's zero COVID policy was in place for over two years from 2020 till December of 2022, and it had a significant impact on the country. The policy has been credited with keeping case numbers low and deaths even lower, but it has also come at a cost. China's zero COVID policy was a comprehensive approach to preventing the spread of COVID-19. It included a number of measures, such as mass testing, where China conducted mass testing on a regular basis from the start of the pandemic. This helped to identify cases early and contain outbreaks before they could spread. It also featured quarantine. People who tested positive for COVID-19 were required to quarantine for 14 days. This helped to prevent them from spreading the virus to others. And of course, lockdowns. When an outbreak was large enough, the government would impose a lockdown. This meant that people were not allowed to leave their homes, except for essential reasons. Zero COVID policy has supposedly been successful in keeping numbers low in China. In 2022, China reported uh, just several tens of thousands of cases of COVID-19, compared to millions of cases in the United States. However, the policy has also come at a cost, undeniably. The zero COVID policy has had a significant impact on the Chinese economy. Lockdowns have caused businesses to close and people to lose their jobs. The policy has also disrupted supply chains, making it difficult for businesses to get the goods and materials they need. Zero COVID policy is projected to have cut the Chinese GDP growth rate by about 2%, costing China around $300 to $400 billion in lost GDP in total. Zero COVID policy is also having a social impact. People are becoming increasingly frustrated with the restrictions, and there were widespread protests in November of last year. On November 25th, a fire at an apartment building in the Xinjiang region killed 10. Many in China blame the tragedy on a COVID-19 lockdown that might have hampered both the efforts of rescue services to enter the building and those of residents trying to flee. Throughout China, people, especially students, took to the streets holding a blank sheet of white paper in protest. Online videos circulated the news faster than censors could keep it suppressed. Weeks later, in December, the CCP announced that it was ending the zero COVID policy. 
Anonymous CCP members have told Reuters that opening up was originally planned for March of 2023, but the white paper protests hastened the opening up, though Beijing officially doesn't recognize the protests as having had an impact on the decision. The abrupt end of zero COVID, though, is arguably the biggest political blow to President Xi Jinping, who just started his third term, the first Chinese president to do so since Mao Zedong. President Xi had just weeks prior issued major promotions to local officials who oversaw the most stringent zero COVID policies. And it is a rare instance of nationwide protests and of the CCP swiftly adhering to protest demands. Now onto our last big issue, Hong Kong and Macau. Hong Kong and Macau have been under China's one country, two systems policy since 1997. As such, they both have a great degree of autonomy as administrative regions of the People's Republic of China. Under this system, the governments have broad powers, but definitely and in no ways any that relate to defense and foreign affairs. Both have their own legislatures, courts, and currencies. Citizens in Hong Kong have freedom of assembly and freedom of speech under its basic law. However, these freedoms have been dramatically undermined by the Chinese government in Beijing in recent years, with the arrests of journalists, disappearances of CCP critics, and new laws that push further integration between Hong Kong and the mainland. In 2020, Beijing bypassed the Hong Kong legislature and imposed a national security law, aka the Law of the People's Republic of China, on safeguarding national security in the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region. Very creative naming, as you can see. The law established four new crimes within Hong Kong, secession, subversion, terrorism, and collusion with foreign organization. In addition, it criminalizes open speech, verbal promotion, or intention of Hong Kong's secession from China. Many have been arrested under the law already, including pro-democracy activists. Macau, also under the One Country, Two Systems policy, has some differences with Hong Kong, for one, Macau's economy relies almost entirely upon gambling, rather than the diverse financial hub that is Hong Kong. Macau is also a former Portuguese colony, in contrast to Hong Kong, which was a British possession until the 1990s. But most importantly, Macau is less troublesome to the CCP than Hong Kong is. With protests against Beijing being rare and small in scale, and so, the CCP has gone through comparatively little efforts to force the integration of Macau into the mainland. In the late 2040s, both of the agreements that guarantee the autonomy of Hong Kong and Macau are set to expire. The exact status of the two territories after that? Well, it's uncertain. But with Hong Kong integration with the mainland already being pushed by Beijing, it's really hard to see any alternative than further integration. And with that, folks, it is time for our first break. When we come back, you'll be hearing from interviews I conducted earlier this week with two professors of political science, Professor Bruce Dixon of the George Washington University and Professor Jessica Liao, formerly of the George Washington University, but who now teaches at North Carolina State University. Hello, folks. I am Francisco, aka AJ Camacho, with WRGW's Pindrop. And I'm speaking now with Professor Bruce Dixon, a professor here at the George Washington University and author of the book, The Party and the People. Professor Dixon, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. Hi, AJ. Great to be with you. All right, yeah, let's, let's get straight into some of the news. Um, and among the most pressing stuff that has happened this, this last year in terms of China news is Xi Jinping's the beginning of his third term. Uh, this is generally described in, in the press as unprecedented. Um, and it does seem generally like it is a regression again towards the years of, of, of Mao and away from the reforms that we saw after Deng Xiaoping. Uh, how should people who are just observing this and listening to this, how much impact should the simple fact that Xi Jinping is having a third term actually, how much weight should that have in their mind? Uh, well, I think it, it has a, a huge impact. It's not just that he has 
begin a third term of office. So another, at least another five years, perhaps another 10 years in power in China. But he has uh, maneuvered the rest of the political system to be um, somewhat beholden to his priorities and his approach to governance and to foreign policy. He's largely eliminated the other factions that had been part of the party leadership going back for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, so it's now really more than before a unified party uh, that is really out to help him fulfill his priorities and not necessarily be offering alternative perspectives, alternative priorities. Uh, so it's really his game now. And as I understand it from your book and other folks that I've talked to in research that I have done, a lot of this was done under the perception that the Hu Jintao years had seen too great of a weakening in the ability to make decisions and the CCP too weak of a central figure. Uh, do we have any evidence that there are people within the CCP who think that there has been an overcorrection with Xi Jinping, that there has been too much power in place, that there is, what, what kind of evidence is there of opposition to his consolidation of power? Uh, there's almost no evidence of opposition. There's kind of murmurs and grumbling from people who are outside the system. Uh, but one of the remarkable things about the Chinese political system, especially at the very top, is that it is a very united front on most issues. And so if there is a discrepancy, a division of or a difference of opinion, we don't know about it openly. They, they make sure that those types of differences are not aired publicly. Um, you would imagine that there's opposition to his element. The other factions are not happy about being pushed out of power. Uh, the other, uh, they may not be happy about him having a third term because they thought maybe it was time for the position to rotate to one of their factions. So logic tells you there's going to be resentment and maybe even opposition, uh, but it's very muted. Uh, the, the risk of confronting him has been very high because his anti-corruption campaign has targeted people who are not just guilty of corruption, but potential rivals to him. Uh, so if you if you run afoul of, of his good graces, uh, you're likely to end up in jail. Uh, yeah, we're looking forward to talking a lot more about the uh, the white paper protests, as they're called, and the, the zero COVID policy with Professor Liao, who was in uh, China, who was in China for much of that time. I want to take a shift towards something that's a little bit less addressed. Um, but Xi Jinping was largely known as mayor of Xiamen for taking a tough environmental stance, as well as his anti-corruption uh, stance, as you mentioned. Um, but I think most people look at China today, and it's kind of hard to piece together just how green they are, because they do still burn a lot of coal. How would you characterize China's relationship with a green future and climate change at the moment? Are they where they're saying that they're at? Are they a bit lacking? What is their relationship with climate change at the moment? Uh, you're absolutely right that Xi Jinping has had a uh, record throughout his career of paying attention to the environment and worried about the impact of economic growth on the environment. Um, the situation in China today is that the, the environment is lousy, but it's, it's getting better. Um, it is no longer, it's still the main number one producer of greenhouse gases in the world. Uh, in total, uh, in per capita terms, the U.S. is worse, but in terms of aggregate numbers, China is, is still the number one producer. And it recognizes the both the domestic, economic, and social cost of pollution, and to some extent recognizes the international cost to its reputation by being seen as not just a producer of greenhouse gases, but also a laggard in cleaning up its environment and helping to um, slow down or reverse uh, the climate change that we've been seeing throughout the world. Um, they've got a long ways to go in really making a transition. And one reason, as you mentioned, is they rely so much on coal and not just coal, but a very dirty form of coal that they have in their own country. Uh, otherwise, they have to import much of their energy needs. Um, so on the one hand, they're, they're working on, on renewable energies. They're the world's leader in solar panels for roofs, for uh, you know uh, batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, but at the same time, uh, they 
use coal a lot in, in their in their domestic economy uh, because it's available. Uh, they have a goal of of achieving uh, other targets for reduction in use of coal, but in the short run, they're increasing its use. So it's it's very much a ambiguous picture that on the one hand, the rhetoric emphasizes their commitment. Uh, in the long run, they, they're doing things that will be effective, but in the short run, uh, they're still relying upon forms of energy that uh, are very damaging to both their climate as well as the world's climate. I guess in a sense, only time will tell if it continues in this way. Um, I want to shift now towards what I like to call the most country-like countries that are not actually countries, uh, Hong Kong and Macau. Uh, Hong Kong, of course, gets the news, but just briefly, can you give us a, a sense of really what the status of Macau is? Because Hong Kong is portrayed as this you know, mostly autonomous area that has been increasingly more pulled in by CCP, has increasingly seen uh, Beijing's power influenced within it. But we don't hear much about Macau. Is it in a very similar boat to Hong Kong? Are situations any better or worse there? It's, it's different from Hong Kong in part because it was less important to the rest of China. Uh, Hong Kong was so important as a source of of investment in other Chinese enterprises, in a source of, of, of flow of imports and exports between China and the rest of the world. So Hong Kong had a pivotal role in financing, in investment, uh, in expertise, uh, in banking. It was, it was just seen as being essential. Macau is really has one industry, and that's tourism and, and specifically gambling. Um, and Gambling is technically illegal in the rest of China. And so if you want to gamble, you either go to Macau uh, or you go to Las Vegas or Atlantic City. And they, they probably, Chinese leaders probably prefer that you go to Macau because that you know the money stays more or less in-house. Uh, Xi's anti-corruption campaign, however, had a huge impact on Macau's um, gambling industry because now local officials couldn't take those junkets to Macau and lose a bunch of money at the craps tables. So um, Macau is, has, uh, its economy has, has suffered the consequences of that, uh, but it has never had the autonomous, independent political viewpoints that, that uh, made Beijing eventually crack down on Hong Kong a few years ago. There, if there is a movement like that in Macau, uh, it is very, very quiet and and off the radar. Um, it's really just known as a destination for people who want to gamble. And now, as you alluded to, we will turn to Hong Kong in these last couple of minutes that we have. Uh, because some years ago, was it 2020? I think it was 2020, 2019, uh, 2019, when there were these big protests happening in Hong Kong against an extradition bill. That extradition bill was retracted. I think many would argue that it seemed like this was a nominal victory for these protesters, for people who wanted Hong Kong to remain more distinct from the rest of China. At the same time, there are still arrests and disappearances of people in Hong Kong who are critical of the CCP. Uh, what, In terms of the institutions, though, in terms of the actual laws on the books, how power is operating within Hong Kong, who is winning in this battle? People who seek more autonomy or people who seek closer ties with Beijing? Oh, it's not even close. It's, it's the, uh, the integration of Hong Kong into the Chinese mainland. What had originally been described as a one country, two systems framework in which uh, Hong Kong had been returned to Chinese sovereignty after being a colony of the United Kingdom for, for almost 100 years. But it was expected that it would, it would have a large degree of autonomy and run its own affairs uh, as it saw fit with some guidance from Beijing. But that, that guidance has now become uh, more of a uh, full-scale dictatorship. So Beijing has now got complete control uh, near complete control over Hong Kong. Uh, the leader who had introduced the extradition treaty that got 
that triggered the protest, but also then later got pulled off the table, um, has been replaced with someone who's really much more of a law and order person and much more um, uh, tied with Beijing and and in favor of those kind of hardline policies. Um, the people who had been involved in the protests of seeking greater autonomy have either emigrated or otherwise many of them have been uh, put in prison. So there is there's not much of a, of a independence movement left in Hong Kong just because the danger is involved with it. Um, it used to be as China was becoming more authoritarian, there were more people who were leaving China to go to Hong Kong as sort of a somewhat less authoritarian place. Now those people are looking for somewhere else to go because Hong Kong is getting almost as bad in terms of controls over people's lives, the the absence of free speech, uh, limits on information. Um, so any hopes that there may have been that Hong Kong was going to be a uh, more autonomous, more independent locale has really just evaporated since uh, since the end of 2019, especially in, in 2020. Uh, Professor Bruce Dixon is the author of the book, The Party and the People, and he's a professor here at the George Washington University. Professor Dixon, thanks for joining Pindrop today. Thanks. Great to be with you. Hello, folks. I am Francisco, aka AJ Camacho with WRGW's Pindrop, and I am speaking now with a professor of political science at North Carolina State University, Dr. Jessica Liao. Professor Liao, thank you very much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you for having me here. All right, I want to, to get straight into this and um, really take advantage of, of experiences that you've had recently, because you were in China until fairly recently, uh, in Beijing, and this included a, a lot of the time when China was under this so-called zero COVID policy. Now, we've already explained a little bit about the broad strokes of what that is, but I hope that you can explain for our, our listeners, as someone who was actually living through it, what it was like, what the effect it, it had on your daily life, what that was. All right. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to talk on your radio. And uh, I know the uh, audience for your show, are mostly students, uh, you know, probably some of them have more uh, China knowledge than others. Uh, but I think zero COVID is a phrase that everybody have heard quite a lot. And what exactly zero COVID policies entail? It was basically a very systemic, large scale undertaking of residential lockdown, business shutdown, quarantine, mass testing, and stringent border control, both in and out of China, and even between different Chinese localities. We're talking about like not just provinces, but like, you know, between different counties or cities, or even at some really like outbreak time uh, among like neighborhood, uh, they also have like very stringent rules to restrict people's mobilities and interactions. And that is basically this whole regime that, that is, you know, uh, scaling wide and scaling deep in uh, controlling people's, you know, interactions. I want to ask one last quick question on zero COVID and then move on. But uh, the white paper protests, as they're called, that happened in November against the zero COVID policy, they happened across the entire country, relatively speaking, at the same time. Something that, it, you know, on the surface appears to be unprecedented in recent Chinese history. Uh, just Give us a sense of historically how big of a deal is it that this protest actually happened and that the Chinese government reversed the zero COVID policy within weeks of that. Is this really an unprecedented situation or is there some historical basis for the CCP reacting like this? Mm -hmm. I think, well, compare with um, Tiananmen protests of mm -hmm. 1989, the scale of 
you know, white paper protests and also other protests like across the whole China is not necessarily affiliated with white papers. There were like other kind of incidents that was more in response to like, you know, like disputes over like bank default or like, you know, factories like Foxconn, uh, like a factory in Henan province, they have like extreme zero COVID lockdown that essentially led to like a big protest outbreak between, you know, uh, factory workers and uh, Henan uh, uh, provincial police. Uh, and uh, there were also other protests like across the countries not directly affiliated with zero COVID, with white paper protests. But somehow it's this kind of like, you know, like coincidental, uh, like the timing, like, you know, like mm-hmm. it was all happening like within a very close time frame. And that make people feel like, yeah, this is all happening like under like white paper movement. But I think it's actually the the reasons and the appeals of each protest is actually more dynamic. Some of them are directly in response to white paper movement. Others are indirectly, but it's more like, you know, still related to like the problems caused by zero COVID restrictions. And I think... But but if you look at the scale, even it's like across the countries, compared to like uh 1989 Tiananmen protests and the na- the nationwide uh, protests uh you know coming along with that, it was like not not even comparable. Uh, it was much larger, smaller scale at this time that we observe. What make it very unique is that under you know she. Uh, Xi Jinping government's Thai rule, this kind of protest is very rare over the past decade. You can almost say it's unseen. That was like so much, and, and some of them even, you know, talking not just about COVID, but about their appeal to a change of domestic, you know, rule, the domestic systems. So that make it so like unusual. Uh, because it was so rare, uh, you know, not seen uh, before. And, and talking about why is this unique, uh, I think there is always something about student protests. Uh, Tiananmen, you know, movement is the student lab protest uh, uh, movement. And then thinking about CCP's genesis, it was actually started in ninety. 90- 19, uh, the May, uh, the May force movement, you know, in contestation, uh, with the, the, the Versailles Treaty of the World War One. So there is always that kind of like nationalist appeal that the Chinese intelligentsias, like intelligentsias led by students in order to make their country strong, make their country, you know, like improve their country's dignity. So I think in some way, CCP was brought up by student movement. Um, it would care dramatically about it. Care like uh, it. It really care about like students' opinions. Um, and and not to mention at a backdrop of this rising, you know, dissatisfaction among students is really a reflection of the rising college unemployment rate in China, especially during the COVID time. Um, I don't remember the specific figures, but it was very dramatic. Uh, and and if you are a college graduate in China mm-hmm. and even you cannot find a satisfying job, that says a lot about the economic challenge the country faced. And I think that is why that uh, the party was very concerned about uh, the public opinion, uh, just for what it actually the protest actually showcased. As a as a graduate myself, uh, who has not yet found a job, I can relate to that in many ways. Um, I, I have to turn now because I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about Chinese foreign policy a bit too. And I'm just going to ask you the question that's on the minds of so many people right now: um, Is China about to invade Taiwan? Uh, yeah, we, you know, um, as every like close observers on the topic, uh, it's a big question mark. And, uh, you know, the, the, the answer is nobody really knows. 
And the truth is, like most, you know, situations, uh, rather than lying on black or white, but it's like a large spectrum of gray area. That's where most policymaking is operating upon, right? But we can say this compared to five years ago, the likelihood of, you know, China's invasion of Taiwan is dramatically increasing. And uh, if we follow uh, President Xi's remark, either towards PLA, towards party, towards, uh, you know, Chinese government in general, or Chinese public even, uh, it seems like they're increasingly determined to put out a timeline. And uh, so the, the, you know, the recent conclusion of the two sessions in March, uh, we see a dramatic, you know, uh, rise of the military budget, right? And like, you know, much higher than it used to be like, you know, in proportional, uh, in proportion with uh, China's economic growth. And now it's certainly like, you know, surpassed that uh, economic growth. Uh, like military budget is still pretty much like you know, on a very steady rise where the Chinese economic growth is plateau. Um before 27, uh, President Xi already make it very clear. They're going to build up a modernized military that was willing to and not afraid of any kind of, this is a phrase they use frequently, struggle, right? And uh, if you listen to his speech on the 20th Party Congress uh, in October last year, and then again in two sessions, this phrase of struggles is probably the, the, the most frequent like, buzzword uh, across the two speech. Uh, it really shows that a very different posture compared to the previous leadership on the Taiwan issue. So, uh, and, and they, the goal is to really have like a full capability. If, you know, push come to the shelf, they have to do it. Then they're willing to take that chance. And if you listen to, um, especially, you know, since last year, Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taipei and then the recent, you know, uh, meetings between uh, Chinese, uh, between Taiwanese President Tsai and uh, Speaker McCarthy, um, both times they are very like provoking the hardliners rhetoric, you know, and, and now it's becoming more and more of a mainstream on the uh, Taiwan issue. They are not afraid to, to, to take a fight if they have to. And, and I think this is really something concerning because when uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I talked to folks in DC and, and I think like the most like policy, you know, thinkers, a lot of policy, I don't want to say most, I think a lot of people within DOD actually come to that recognition. But still, quite a lot of policy thinkers in D.C. or in Capitol Hill uh, still think that China is not ready and still think that it's a rhetoric that China is bluffing. I think it's becoming less and less so. They are really seriously looking into that scenario and preparing for that scenario. I guess only time will tell, in a sense. Um... And to be sure, Dr. Liao, we could spend hours talking about any of these questions and still have even more questions to ask. But sadly, we are out of time. Dr. Jessica Liao is a political science professor at North Carolina State University. Professor Liao, thank you so much for joining Pindrop today. Thank you for having me. All right, and now it is time to head into our panel of this week. Again, I'm Kate McCown, back for more, and I am here with Wu Kong and Patrick Ko. Uh, how is everyone doing this evening? Fantastic. Good. Yeah. And of course, we pin drop folks as well. I'm Francisco. You might remember me from about 30 minutes ago. I'm on the panel for today. And I'm Carl Mackinson. I'm a second-year PhD student here at GW who also works at the radio. Amazing. So I am going to open a little bit. We're going to go in a little bit of reverse order to the topics this week. So the interviews we just finished with ended on the topic of Taiwan. And I wanted to ask you guys, uh, 
when seemingly China makes their inevitable grab for Taiwan. Do we think uh, it'll the grab will fall under a one country, two systems um, type uh, power grab, or do we think China's going to take a more militaristic approach? I think that from the ten the trends that we have been seeing in the past couple of days, um, China has been focusing a lot on its military and uh, with the visit of President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan to the U.S., they have decided to launch a three-day military drill exercise. And of course, this uh, has previously happened uh, when uh, former Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan. They also conducted a um, uh, military exercise. But the new thing about the exercise that happened, um, I believe, last week was that um, the Chinese also sent uh, mili- uh, boats and uh, personnel to the eastern side of the island, which uh, traditionally speaking, uh, this would be the, the area where U.S. troops or Allied troops would come to the defense of Taiwan in case of a Chin- Chinese attack. So there is a couple of uh, different um, military maneuvers that China has conducted uh, in this new military drill. And also um, uh, the drill as as well also focused on uh, encircling Taiwan uh, in order to, of course, prevent allied forces to come to the defense of the island. So I believe that China has been uh, improving a lot its uh, techniques to eventually invade the island. Island, and from what I'm seeing in current uh, events, China is uh, definitely uh, looking towards a more delicate uh, uh, resolution of uh, the Taiwan question. Also. Um, I believe at the same time that President Tsai Ing-wen was in the U.S., former President Ma Ying-jeou of the Kuomintang uh, was on a visit in mainland China in order to promote um, promote relations between uh, cross trade relations between China and Taiwan. And uh, from um, from his his perspective was to uh, seek a more peaceful way of resolving the the. Uh, Taiwan question with the Chinese government. However, of course, due to um, due to the, um, the 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 time frame of his visit, um, it was of course uh, uh, shadowed by President Tsai Ing-wen's visit to to the U.S. and uh, of course a lot of his speech as well. Uh, mentioning uh, the Republic of China and what his party has done for Chinese history as well was, of course, censored by Chinese media. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that, uh, in a way, President Tsai Ing-wen's visit to the U.S. was more significant compared to Ma Ying-jeou's approach. And also, Ma Ying-jeou's approach didn't prevent a Chinese military drill to happen um, uh, surrounding Taiwan. So I believe that um, his policy of seeking a way to compromise or appease the Chinese uh, won't prevent a future invasion. And from what I'm seeing, um, China is looking forward into uh, uh, improving their military capabilities to eventually invade Taiwan. I'll be brief in my two cents about the one country, two systems, Kate. Uh, I think it's their best chance, a diplomatic one country, two systems, of finding a situation that works, but I think ultimately when you look at the polling data of what Taiwanese people say, I think that's completely infeasible, just like really any option for this grab at Taiwan whenever it theoretically happens and in whatever capacity it manifests. Um, I would just quickly say I think China's looking to see how the Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to end up. Mm. Um, They're waiting to see how it resolves whether Ukraine, the smaller country right next to the larger country, gets dominated, um, whether the international community steps in any further other than sanctions and military aid. Um, they're, they're drawing closer to Russia, and they're going to take a page out of Russia's book. I mean, yeah, I, I would like to challenge 
the assumption of the question because it makes it sound like China will definitely attack Taiwan. But just going with, because the question was framed at what is China going to do if they attack Taiwan? Like two countries, one system, one country, two systems. My bad. But to kind of roll with it a little bit, I doubt that China would want to pursue a one country, two systems because they've been cracking down so much on Hong Kong over the last two years, especially over COVID. And they would just want to avoid that mess altogether. Um, but you raised an interesting point about China watching the Ukraine invasion. Um, and yeah, the you know the Western powers haven't really put up much of a fight other than sanctions and sending guns and money. And I do think that Putin and the Russian regime are making progress in Ukraine. But I think China is really seeing that, you know, yes, Russians are getting territory, they're getting resources they want, but it's coming at a huge population cost. It's coming at a huge economic cost, something that's going to have serious uh, ramifications in the long term. And I think why would China invade Taiwan in a hot war when they're already getting what they want in a soft war, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of reminiscent of, you know, the Union's Anaconda plan in the Civil War, where, you know, you just cut them off, isolate them. I think it was just two months ago that it was either uh, El Salvador or Nicaragua that yeah. no longer fish recognized Taiwan. Nicaragua, yeah. Um, and, you know, China already has a lot of population problems, but something I was looking at last week was, uh, like, their manual workforce, right? And I think it's 70 or 80% of the country is what they'd call, like, um, transitory workers, right? Like, people that travel around because they don't have enough opportunity in their local villages. And, you know, China's population is aging. They have a huge uh, gender imbalance. And to, you know, one of the reasons that they were so harsh on uh, zero COVID was because they were afraid of losing a lot of older people because younger people are less and less willing to work more manual jobs. They don't want to be, you know, farmers or manufacturers. They want all the high-tech flashy stuff, business, AI, whatever it is. Um, I don't think they'd risk hurting the workforce already with like a hot war um you raise a really interesting point and you are absolutely and entirely right i did phrase that question a little bit misleadingly um and yeah i think you know you guys all offered some really interesting points carl i think your point with uh the comparison between russia and uh ukraine and how that war is going was uh really uh, something i've spent a decent amount of time thinking about in uh one U.S. foreign policy class. Um, But kind of continuing this uh, discussion on uh, Chinese, like, control, um, I guess, to... And I know you just mentioned uh, talking about the population uh, and the workforce, and specifically that zero COVID was a little bit, at least in part, meant to protect the older workforce. Um, To what extent do we think zero COVID was also uh, a place where the the regime in China was able to exhibit, you know, control over the population. I'll be very quick because I'm cognizant that we, we are sadly limited on our time. But um, I think that that's part of the reason it lasted so long is because people had interests. It was an excuse for the government to maintain more control over daily life, which I think is always something that's hard for people in charge to give up. Um, but it is certainly very telling how quickly it went from 100 back to zero, how quickly it was rolled back, and really just a night and day difference in daily life, which, which Professor Liao talked about in that interview. Um, so I think the reason it lasted so long is precisely because of that, but I do think it's telling of what the CCP must have seen in the white paper protests for them to have rolled it back so quickly. Right. Um, I also believe that uh, the people at first, um, I think that this is a characteristic maybe perhaps specifically towards uh, Chinese uh, regardless as like in Singapore, Taiwan or Chinese, Mm -hmm. many of them really trust the government and uh, I think this might be a reason why the zero COVID policy was uh, successful in China at the beginning however, as it extended throughout a long period, of course the local population got upset specifically because it was hurting the Chinese economy and also freedom of movement, a lot of cases of Chinese officials abusing their power to make people stay. A lot of people died because they didn't have access to hospitals. Mm. Um, They were uh, sealed into their apartments. So um, a lot of this demonstrated the real nature of the CCP and the way that they govern. It's not towards... um, individual freedom is not towards um, people's um, liberty to 
to engage in in um, in in trade or um, um, it's basically uh, constraining them as well. Like as we have seen through through China's developments uh, throughout the years, we have noticed that. Um, China had increasingly uh, increasing economic growth, but also this has led to their population to um, to enrich themselves. And the Chinese population, from my understanding, they don't care much about politics in a way because the government prevents them of caring about them about it. Uh, but as long as the government provides. Um, uh, Entertainment or food enough uh, is what Ro Rome would call uh, uh, circus and, and bread. Basically, mm. um, this would uh, the Chinese population would be uh, um, happy. But from what we have seen through the uh, zero COVID policy, uh, China has taken away this. This right, what the Chinese people think it's a right for them to have food, to have access to like uh, um, med, uh, hospital attention and stuff like that, um, and the Chinese government just proved that they couldn't provide it. So yeah, I mean yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth because it was successful and it worked because the people supported it, um, and you know I think that idea is kind of very foreign to a lot of Americans that. You know, just you don't think about politics. And I think to anyone, it would have been completely unimaginable up until before COVID. Or during COVID, the government's like, okay, we're going to tell you when and where you can gather, when and where you can work, how you can work, and control certain aspects of your life. And sure, that's great. You know, you trust the experts. They have your best intentions in mind. But in the U.S., you know, we have at least the political diversity where it's like, oh, if I don't like that, I'm just going to go to Florida or Texas or whatever, where I can do whatever I want. And that was kind of the problem with the uh, white paper movement, where it's you don't really have an alternative in China. And when these policies have proven to be unsuccessful and unpopular, uh, the party, at least in large part, has shown willingness to listen to the people and change, as they did. Um, so. And that does it for today's panel, folks. Now, that means it's time to spin the globe. that Pin has dropped on the Netherlands. So make sure to join us next Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time on GWRadio.com to hear the latest news, insights, and analysis surrounding the Netherlands. Pin Drop is a news department production of WRGW District Radio. You can listen to all of our episodes as well as bonus interviews on Spotify, as well as Apple, Amazon, and Google Podcasts. Our guests today were Bruce Dixon and Jessica Liao. Our student panelists were Patrick Ko, Wu Kong, myself, Francisco Camacho, and Carl Mackinson. I am Francisco Camacho, co-anchor and scriptwriter at Pindrop, and my co-anchor was Audrey Tillman. Our researchers have been Audrey Tillman, Jacob Swartz, Regia Amir, and Kate McCown handles engineering and moderated today's panel. Our producer is Ian Kearns. Thank you.